0: Well, good morning again, everybody. It's great to see you. Yes, this is the uh, one last final time that I'll be here before my departure. Uh, No, I hope to be here again. I hope that wasn't a harbinger of of truth um, for me here because I enjoy being here. As I mentioned last time, it's kind of like a second home as we try to figure out where our Our first home uh, is we're kind of landing at Living Roots Church um, with uh, Art Senna as the pastor there. Um, One helpful reason is because my mother-in-law goes there, and so when it's time to exchange the grandchildren, uh, do a a prisoner exchange, it's helpful and convenient when we're at the same church. So um, we're able to do that with her there. But we've also really enjoyed uh, spending time here with you guys as well. And look forward to it every time we have the opportunity. Um, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 4. If you want to turn there, Psalm 4. And uh, one more note that I'll mention is I am not wearing the same clothes I wore last time. Actually, uh, I have my wife take pictures in the back just to prove that I'm not wearing the same clothes. I'm going to see it. Last time I wore a gray vest and a blue shirt, and this time I'm wearing a blue vest and a gray shirt. So. Uh, there you go. So, but you, but you guys have caught on to the pattern um, <laughs> a little bit, it seems like. So, uh, yes, as I mentioned, we are going to be in Psalm 4 this morning, and I'm going to start just by reading the psalm, and um, we're going to work through it. It's a short eight verses. Um, I'm actually speaking at Living Roots next Sunday. And so the inspiration for choosing Psalm 4 came from the fact that I was asked to teach Psalm 4 at Living Roots next Sunday. So it kind of helped it be a little bit more convenient in the preparation time in these times just to be able to do the same passage and the same message. So Psalm 4, I'm going to read it, just eight verses. It begins like this, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Heavenly Father, as we consider this inspired text this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would do a few things, things that you say you would do in your word, that you would teach us as disciples of Jesus, and that you would change us, you would conform us into his image, for that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Please use this text and our time together this morning to accomplish those purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to ask the question in here, uh, how many among you uh, would consider yourself a morning person? Raise your hand if you're a morning person. That means you you wake up early, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you spring right out of bed. Okay, very few. Okay, that, maybe that's why the service is at 10 a.m., <laughs> Most of the people at Living Roots, it's 1030, and that's great for people who aren't morning people like me. So how many of you are night people then? I mean, it should be a a direct opposite. Some people are neither morning nor night people. Uh, You just sleep all the time. Just always tired. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I saw a meme one time that said, being an adult is easy. You are just tired all the time, and you tell other people about how tired you are, and they tell you about how tired they are. So sometimes that is true, especially uh, uh, for the parents out there. So um, I am not a morning person. Um, I wish I was a morning person. When I do wake up early in the morning, I enjoy it. In fact, I love the mornings. I just wish they came later in the day. Uh, It would be great if that were the case. Well, this has been called an evening hymn in contrast to Psalm 3, which David also wrote. in Psalm 3 is known as the morning psalm. So you have the morning psalm and Psalm 3 and the evening hymn or the evening psalm in Psalm 4. And as we read verse 8 together, you could probably see why it's considered the evening hymn, Um, that great verse that maybe many of you have memorized or meditated or put on your fridge or something. We're going to talk about that when we get there. And so we're going to be looking at this evening psalm, this evening psalm, I wanted to just kind of give a brief overview of the psalm in general, and I got this from a commentator. Um, The division, they say, in in the first verse, David pleads with God for help. In the second, he expostulates with his enemies and continues to address them to the end of verse 5. Then from verse 6 to the close, he delightfully contrasts his own satisfaction and safety with the disquietude of the ungodly in their best estate. And then he closes with this. He says, The psalm was most probably written upon the same occasion as the preceding, Psalm 3, as I mentioned, and is another choice flower from the garden of affliction. Happy is it for us that David was tried, or probably we should never have heard these sweet sonnets of faith. So David's afflictions, David's distress, the things that he experienced— have become words of hope and life and truth to us. And for that, we can be grateful. I'm going to read the psalm one more time just because I I think it's helpful. Um, If you're anything like me, I can forget very easily. As I said last time I spoke, it can go in one eye and out the other. And uh, there's not always a lot of cognitive understanding. So I'm going to read it one more time, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David begins... Uh, The psalm, as a lot of the psalms do begin, with not just the introduction for the director of music with stringed instruments. So we learn that this is actually a song, a worship song, that's sung in the congregation of Israel. Which is also very fitting because um, a lot of times we can think of psalms as David's personal prayer journal. In a lot of ways it is. Um, The psalms that he's written are very personal. But they're also very public, And there's something to be said about that dichotomy of personal versus public in regards to our faith and the things that we go through, the the challenges that we run into, they can be very personal. In fact, they are very personal. They affect us very deeply. They are a major part of who we are. But as believers in Christ, we know that God wants to use the things that we go through, especially our weaknesses, to show his strength. And so, although we Endure things that are personal, that doesn't mean that they are private. Personal and private are two different things. One time I um, was at the bank and uh, was doing a transaction there, probably seeing that I had no money in my account. And then uh, I noticed that the teller was wearing a cross necklace. And I always look for an opportunity to see if there's any signs of life and be able to share the gospel. And so I said, oh, I I noticed your necklace, are you a believer? And she actually covered the, the necklace and said, yes, but my faith is very private. And I didn't argue with her about that. I just had you know, thoughts about it as I left. And I, was, I remember thinking, and this was probably the first time I thought about it really deeply. I was kind of a newer believer when it happened. And I remember thinking, I don't know. I'm wondering you know, what the difference is between private and personal. I know our faith is supposed to be personal, but I don't think it's supposed to be private. Um, we're not supposed to... Uh, you know, hide our light under a bushel or, um, the city on the top of the hill, um, isn't supposed to be, you know, in a blackout when we have opportunity to witness the truth of the Lord. So with David here, we see that his words, his life is very, very personal, but it's also public. They're singing it together as a congregation, these words. And I think that's a powerful note Because it's something that reminds us that our authentic selves, who we really are and what we really deal with, can be used as worship unto God as we share it with other people. And so he says, it's a psalm of David, and he says, answer me when I call to you. So there's a thought of proven faithfulness from God here as you read the first verse. David is calling upon a God that he knows has been faithful in the past, and he expects or anticipates will continue to be faithful to him. One commentator said, It is not to be imagined that he who has helped us in six troubles will leave us in the seventh. God does nothing by halves. He will never cease to help until we cease to need. I thought that was great. He continues, Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God, or some of your translations might say, God of my righteousness. And I think that's fitting because we are not righteous in and of ourselves. Uh, as you guys have gone through the catechism as you've sat through teachings here at Soma as you've been discipled in your faith in Jesus the recurring message or theme is that self righteousness or our own righteousness will have no standing no bearing and get us no favor before god only the righteousness of christ the one who gave his life on the cross for us as a substitute substitutionary sacrifice can bring about the righteousness of God. It reminds me of, um, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, uh, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself is our righteousness. O God of my righteousness, or O my righteous God, David cries out. Christ imputes or credits his righteousness to us through faith in him. This is something that David understood. He goes on, give me relief from my distress. I don't know about you, but this is a constant prayer of mine. (laughs) I don't think anybody who's in distress doesn't cry out and ask for relief. Even those who don't believe in God sometimes are crying out to somebody somewhere out there for relief. But we have a God that we can cry out to, as David did, And we could say, give me relief from my distress. And even if we don't experience relief in that moment, we can hold simultaneously this idea that God, as we mentioned earlier, is trustworthy and true. He will stand on my behalf. He will bring the relief that I need, even if I'm not experiencing it at this point in time, at this moment. It was a certainty for David that Jesus, that God would hear his prayer. And he prayed this prayer. Constantly, And so I'm in good company, and so are you, if you pray this prayer. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. I plead my cause on the precedent of your past faithfulness. Therefore, please hear my current cry for help. In verse 2, he says, How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. In this case, David's distress was a result of persecution from others. As you read about the life of David, you see this happening continually, especially until he ascended to the throne. He was anointed as king, as a, as a boy, as a child, essentially. And he had to go through so many difficulties and trials and circumstances to become king. And then there were times of peace and then his kids grew up. And then there were times of strife again, especially with Absalom. In fact, as you read Psalm 3, it's a psalm uh, that was written because of the pressures that David felt as a result of being pursued, his, his own life being pursued, pursued by his son, Absalom. And so he definitely experienced a lot of distress as a result of the persecution from others. And maybe, maybe we experience that, um, maybe not as much as David, but we certainly experience times of oppression, times of difficulty, times of hardship. And a lot of times it can be connected to those around us. And so in this case, as I mentioned, his distress was a result of uh, his relationship with those around him. And David was called a man after God's own heart. This is said a lot um, in Christian circles, especially from the pulpit as we proclaim this mighty man of God, David, King David, and all his works and all he represented. Uh, But there were also plenty of people uh, who were after David's heart, (laughs) literally. They wanted to rip it out. But what made him a man after God's heart? Wasn't he equally as great a sinner as those he complained about, as his enemies? After all, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a liar. Uh, There were a lot of flaws about David. So why would the scripture call him a man after God's own heart? What sets him apart from the rest? It's simply this. He acknowledged his sin. He confessed his sin. And he came humbly with a contrite heart before the Lord. He repented when he was confronted by the weight of of his sin. That's really the difference between believers and non-believers, sinners and saints. A saint is just a saved sinner. The difference really comes down to one thing. It's faith. The primary difference between sinners and saints comes down to that one thing. Faith. Faith with, which brings about humility to confess to the Lord. Uh, one commentator said, The best of men need mercy as truly as the worst of men. All the deliverances of saints, as well as the pardons of sinners, are the free gifts of heavenly grace. David was a great sinner with equally great faith. You take this psalm, for example. Notice that he speaks to God before he speaks to man. When he's faced with difficulty, he speaks to God first. Oh God, give ear to my prayer. Answer me when I call to you for I'm in distress. And then he pours his heart out to the Lord in sincerity. Look at these people. Look what's going on around me. Look what's happening to me. Don't you care, God? Don't you care about your servant? I know I'm a sinner, but I'm wondering if you will show mercy to me. Uh, once more, again. He speaks to God and he speaks to man. Somebody said, surely we should all speak the more boldly to men if we had more constant converse with God. And so the destiny of the unrepentant sinner, the destiny of the unrepentant sinner, as we talked about in the uh, catechism this morning, should shake us into some kind of action. At the very least, Thanksgiving, that we have been able to escape the penalty of hell. Um, Prayer, intercession for those who have yet to believe in Jesus. And boldness to be able to proclaim to others the truth about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that means for those who put their trust in him. That they can escape the penalty, the just deserved penalty, of eternity without God. Experiencing the torment that comes from knowing that Jesus made it so, so simple for them to come and to know and to be forgiven and to be saved. So it should shake us to action. So here David is turning in his converse from God, with God, to man. In verse 3, he continues his observation, "'Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself.'" The Lord will hear when I call to him. Much could be said here about verse 3, but we'll summarize it with the simple words of another. Somebody said, since he chose, since God chose to love us, he cannot but choose to hear us. Since God chose to love us, he cannot but choose to hear us. God loves us, and because he loves us, he hears us when we Pour our hearts out to him in prayer. Verse 4, David continues, In your anger do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. You've probably heard it said before that that phrase, that word selah in the scriptures, actually nobody knows for sure what it really means, but in the pattern of the way that it's used, it seems to be a word to give pause Almost like in a song, it would be an instrumental break so that you can think about the lyrics and reflect upon them. And so David here is calling for a moment of silence to be able to reflect, reflect on the truths of God, but also have self-reflection as well. For he says, search your hearts and be silent. The first part reminds us of uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 where Paul quotes the first section of this verse, um, as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Now we might not be able to, we might not always be able to control our emotions, but we can always control our actions. So I think it's very important to make a distinction here between, uh, anger as an emotion and a, a true emotion that we experience and, uh, anger as, um, thought of as sin. Anger can certainly lead to sin, for sure, but anger in and of itself is not sin because you see it said here, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, be angry and sin not. You can be honest about the emotions that you experience. You can be honest about your anger. We can not always control our emotions, but we can always control our actions. And we should, we should both control our actions, do not sin. And be curious about our emotions. I think it's interesting in this verse. In your anger, do not sin. And then he says, when you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. I think he's calling for an act of curiosity about why we are the way that we are. I've mentioned this in the previous message before. But when I'm, when I'm angry... Anger is known as a secondary emotion. It's the tip of an iceberg above uh, the surface of what's really going on in my heart. What's really happening. And so I might ask the question, why am I angry? Why am I so angry right now? What is the root of my anger? Is my anger justifiable? What is it covering? Is it covering some sort of fear? Some sort of hurt? Am I embarrassed? Am I frustrated? Do I feel rejected? Where is this anger coming from? As I've mentioned before, I think introspection is largely lacking within the Western culture in general and including within the church. This idea of understanding who we are, why do I do the things that I do, I know it's certainly lacking in my life and it's been a recent discipline to try to figure out who am I. I mentioned two weeks ago, I have a hard time knowing who I am. I have a hard time praying to the Lord uh, in, my, in my private time. I can't journal. Why? Because I feel like I can't be sincere because I'm, I'm supposed to be telling the Lord who I am and how I feel. I can't even identify that. I can't even recognize it. Sometimes, I mean, my wife has brought to me before a chart with pictures on it, and said, can you point to something that you might be feeling here? Like a little child. I've had to have that happen. I think in our culture, it's, um, it's stereotypical. I wouldn't say acceptable, but it's, it's definitely something that, that has been the norm where um, men in general aren't really expected to feel or experience or identify their emotions you know, there's a joke like, you know, getting in touch with your emotions, you know, and guys joke around about it, uh, with each other about it as if that's a negative thing. That's something that only women do. Um, and the fact of that joke and that conversation just demonstrates the lack of understanding of, of the need for us to, to really know who we are. I can't tell you my emotions because I don't know what they are. I feel angry. That's all I know. And so out comes the chart. Can you identify any of these feelings? Yeah, I feel a little sad. I feel kind of rejected, you know. And then she gives me a lollipop and we go about our day. But this is an issue. It's not just an issue for men. I think women experience this too, but I think men more so, at least in my observation and my experience. And so what's really going on there? You know, how how can I share my feelings or my emotions or or what I'm really going through with the Lord or with somebody else if I can't even identify them myself. So there's some work that needs to be done there. And I think, I think it's okay to say that there's an invitation from God through the words of David here when he says, when you were on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Spend some time in introspection. Why are you the way that you are? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you feel the way that you feel? I know for me, as I've been able to develop a language of uh, a a framework for for the emotional side of me, we're all emotional beings. God's an emotional being. He created us in his image. As I'm able to develop a language and a framework, things have gotten so much better in my ability to communicate to my wife, to my children, to others, what I'm actually experiencing. I have a long ways to go because the iceberg goes deep. And uh, I can barely see th- below the surface at this point. I have a long ways to go, but I'm learning. I'm learning this discipline of knowing self. And you know what's interesting? As I learn that more, I'm experiencing God at that level as well because he's meeting me there. He's meeting me there, he's teaching me, and he's bringing healing to me. We, I don't think that we can experience healing in the deep places if we don't know how to get there Ourselves to surrender, surrender them to the Lord. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Now, David understood right sacrifices. In fact, in Psalm 51, and verse 17, he said this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, humility, repentance, confession of need, Those are the sacrifices that God will not turn away from. I found this verse in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. I just thought it was so powerful and I hope it resonates in your heart as well. This is what the Lord says. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God lives on high. He's unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light. Yes, He also dwells with those who are lowly and contrite. He comes to them. He visits us in our lowliness, He visits us when we turn to Him in humility. Proverbs 21 and verse 3 says, uh, regarding sacrifices, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It makes me also think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, for this is your reasonable act of worship. The right sacrifice And ultimately, all of these sacrifices point to and are a response to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. Every sacrifice represents the sacrifice that God has made for us. It's just a giving back to him of what already belongs to him. And so David understood these right sacrifices, and he trusted in the Lord he goes on to verse six and says, Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You know, much of what we see with our eyes is shrouded by the gloom of the world. I mean all you have to do is look at the newsfeed. Every morning I swipe to the left on my phone to look at the newsfeed and see the headlines. Um and there's usually nothing good in there. There's nothing like heartwarming or encouraging. It's usually just doom and gloom. I don't even know why I swipe, maybe just to feel better about myself, at least (laughs) at least, you know, these things aren't happening to me personally, it might be happening in the world. But but with eyes of faith, with eyes of faith, Christ's countenance illuminates even the darkest realities. I wrote this down. We cannot see the goodness of God without the filter of faith. We cannot see the goodness of God without the filter of faith. Many are saying, who will show us any good? You can't see it. You cannot see the goodness of God if you don't begin with faith in God. You will just see the gloom that overshadows the world. You know, but somebody has said, seeing is believing. Well, in God's upside down, or I should say right side up kingdom, it's actually the other way around. Believing is seeing. Believing in the one who's given the promise and the sacrifice and his life for us is seeing with eyes of faith the goodness of God. Uh, I thought of this, um, this type of art. My wife's an artist, she's a graphic designer, and uh, she's kind of gotten me interested in art before I thought it was so boring um and uh now i think it's so boring uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things um the uh there's this discipline of art called shadow art and essentially the um the premise behind it is uh taking something and making a pile out of it and it looks just like a pile of nothing a lot of times it's trash like people will make piles of trash um, and it just looks random. Like, what's this trash doing lying in the middle of this room? And then they'll shine a light on it, and the shadow that's cast on the wall is just amazing. There's uh, there's a, an example of, like, a pile of trash, and then the shadow's cast on the wall, and there's two people embracing each other, and it's like the detail looks like there's two, like there should be two people hugging each other, and there it is on the wall. There's another one with, like, Uh, a cityscape that's cast onto the wall that kind of looks like, you know, a New York uh, skyscraper scene. And uh, I couldn't help but think when I saw that art, it was like, that's what God does with our lives. Sometimes our lives feel like, in reality, they really are like a pile of trash, a mess. But when Christ shines his light on it, what is illuminated or what is demonstrated is something beautiful, something that he is creating in making into his masterpiece, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. David continues there in verse 7 You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. So as David turns to God, his distress is redirected toward contentment. It's not that his distress has disappeared. Yeah, I think that's a lot of times what we do as Christians as we proclaim and claim truths about God and his promises, and then we pretend like our problems don't exist anymore. I see that in a lot of people, and I've done that myself as well, but that's not what David's doing. It's more like it's been processed through the knowledge of God, through his light, his love, his truth, and his sovereignty, and that his distress has been put in its proper place, not to be ignored, not to be overlooked, overlooked but to be put in its proper place and perspective to faith. One writer said regarding this verse, he said, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Corn and wine are but the fruits of the world, but the light of God's countenance is the ripe fruit of heaven. And so David, as he processes verbally, as he writes this out unto the Lord, His heart is turning from the distress that he began with to this knowledge and utterance of God's sovereignty and his love and what God has to offer. And then we get to verse 8, sweet verse 8. He says, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So David begins with words of conflict and he ends with words of comfort. God's word to us is peace. And through his word to us, God's work in us is peace. As I mentioned, sometimes this is a process. A process that takes honesty, curiosity, humility, surrender. As we read that verse, "'I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety.'" It does bring comfort to us, but it doesn't always fix the problem, does it? It's not something that we can just read and then immediately fall asleep. Sometimes God will give us that grace. There have been nights where I have quoted scripture to try to fall asleep. I have prayed thinking the enemy will get tired of me trying to call out to God and he'll just leave me alone and let me go to sleep. And that doesn't happen. Because of whatever's going on in my heart, whatever's going on in my life, Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's not our experience. Sometimes our experience is more in line with Psalm 3-5, the previous psalm, and why it's called the morning psalm. He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. It's almost as if in the middle of his discourse about being pursued by Absalom, it's almost as if he's like, oh, I got some sleep last night. And I woke up alive. That's good news. Sometimes that's how life feels. Sometimes it feels like this. In Psalm 6.6, David says, I am worn out from groaning all night long. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Have you ever had a night like that? Even righteous Job said, I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. Somebody said, There is a trial in stillness. And oftentimes the still chamber makes a larger demand upon the loving trust than the battlefield. Sometimes it's harder to wrestle in our bed as we try to sleep than it is to wrestle with our difficulties during the day. And it's okay. It's okay to be honest about that. David was honest about it. Job was honest about it. In fact, not only is it okay, it's necessary. It's necessary to be honest about the struggles that we face that keep us awake at night. Uh, I thought about my uh, toddler. I guess he's a toddler. I don't know. He's in the back there. He's three years old. His name's Aiden. And there was a season when we would lay him down to go to sleep. He would cry out. He does this quite a bit still, but he would cry out and... uh, So we'd go into the bedroom and we'd say, buddy, what's the matter? You know, you got to go to sleep, please. You know, and sometimes it would be really frustrating because it would happen over and over again. But sometimes he would say these words, which just kind of, you know, gave you a little bit of a chill, a little eerie feeling. He would say, something's wrong. What do you mean something's wrong? Everything's okay. You know, you need a light light you need a drink of water. You need, what do you need? He would just say something's wrong. We'd be like, what's wrong? I don't know. But as I thought about that, I could really relate to it. I can't go to sleep. I'm having trouble in my bed. Something's wrong. I can't even figure out what it is. Or if I do know what it is, I don't know what to do about it. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's always wrong. Why is something wrong? Because we are a broken people. We live in a broken world our lives are broken and sometimes they feel like they're beyond repair. Another quick story as we close. The other day, I was at home alone with Aiden and uh, Katie and the older boys were out of the house. And uh, I was in my bedroom kind of tidying up some things and uh, I was thinking about my brokenness. I just feel so broken, Lord. There's just so many things about my life, especially as I'm doing this work of getting to know myself more. It's just scary in there. There's so much hurt. There's so much confusion. There's so much unresolved, undealt with grief, feelings of loss, uh, lack of confidence, insecurity. I mean, I wrestle with so, many, so much baggage. And I'm thinking about my brokenness. And Aiden comes into the room and he has a toy. And he says, Dada, this isn't working. And I take it from him and I look at it and it's obviously like broken beyond repair. So I said, oh, I'm sorry, buddy, it's, it's broken. And he kind of goes, he just looks at me right in the eyes. He's standing really close and he says, broken things can be fixed, right, Baba? <laughs> oh man, it just touched my heart in that moment. It was like God was speaking to me as I was thinking about my own brokenness. And he sends my little three-year-old to come in with an object lesson for me to show me that and to remind me that broken things can be fixed. That's the God that we know. That's the God that we serve. It's the God who loves us and gave himself for us. He's the one who can fix broken things. My prayer for all of us is that we'd be able to take uh, be able to experience the truths of this verse. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'll close with this poem that I found. Um, This is a few hundred years old from somebody named Mrs. McCartney. Two stanzas. She says, How blessed was that sleep the sinless Savior knew in vain the storm sins blew till he awoke to others' woes and hushed the billows to repose. How beautiful is sleep, the sleep that Christians know. Ye mourners, cease your woe. While upon, while soft upon his Savior's breast, the righteous sinks to endless rest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the life of David as it was said in the beginning, Lord, that it's great for us that we have the example of the trials that David experienced so that we can hear, Lord, what it looks like, hear an example of somebody calling out to you in authenticity, in humility, in need. Because we, like David, are a people in need. We need you, God. We live live in a country uh, that is so great and affords us so many opportunities to live an abundant life and even still even still life can be overwhelmingly difficult we are in great need god we need you there's nothing that this world can fix in us as deeply or to the level that we need from you lord in our brokenness only you the great physician the prince of peace can bring healing And so, Lord, I pray as I pray for myself, I pray for anybody in this room, everybody in this room uh, that acknowledges and identifies their own places of brokenness, their own needs, God, that you would meet them there. God, that you would help us to understand the healing that you want to bring to us, that you would help us to understand that your goodness, your goodness can be a salve for us, that can bring wholeness to our brokenness. Lord, that's a continuous process and we, I don't think, we will experience it on this side of heaven. We look forward with great anticipation to that day when we'll be made completely whole. But in the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would make us, you would make us whole. You would help us, Lord, to be able to experience that peace that surpasses understanding so that we can taste your goodness Taste and see that the Lord is good and find refuge in you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.